Well, we're going to look at the Bible together just now. We're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. We've been working our way through the story of David. And we come to perhaps one of the most famous and, and tragic parts of David's story, and that is the story of David and Bathsheba. So we come to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 314 page 314 in the the Red Pew Bibles. And we're going to read all of this chapter. So page 314, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him. And he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Job sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know that they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, 
Also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and come out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Amen. We trust that God will help us to understand his word to us today. Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 11, page 314, if you've got a pew Bible. If any of us were ever to tell our life's story, I imagine there would be parts that we would wish to pass over or at least move through more swiftly, perhaps bits that we would rather not be told at all. And I'm sure that this part of David's life would be part that he would wish to pass over, and yet we should be incredibly grateful that the Bible doesn't do that. It includes this dark part of David's life so that we would be taught and warned and that we might see how sin and temptation would be at work in our lives. Now, in a sense, this is sort of a two-part. These parts, chapter 11 and 12, really go together, the problem and the solution in a way. But, but today, as we, we look at chapter 11, rather than divide what we're going to say into a number of points, we're, we're going to just work our way through the story, make some comments as we go, and a few particular comments uh, at the end. Now, you remember where this happens in the overall sort of story in the life of David? David has, has ascended to uh, the throne. His capital is in Jerusalem. He has been promised an everlasting kingdom by God. We see him acting as God's king, uh, defeating his enemies, chapter 8 and chapter 10. We haven't really looked at chapter 10. Uh, and, and then showing incredible kindness to Mephibosheth. We saw that last week in chapter 9. So we're seeing that God's king is victorious and courageous and yet full of grace and kindness. And now we're going to see that God's king here is not perfect. David is man after God's own heart, but he's also a man with a sinful heart. At the start of the chapter, we find David secure. By the end of the chapter, in nine plus months, he has become an adulterer and a liar and a murderer. This is a story about adultery. The way that Peter led us in prayer there was so very helpful. But it's also a story of sin and temptation more generally. It shows us, as the little booklet, Journey into Life, says that sin spoils and spreads and separates. So let's, let's think about this story. You see how it begins. In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David set, sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, this is not only where the story begins, it's the context 
in which David's sin takes place. There's an implication being made here. Spring is the time, as it says, when the kings are supposed to go out and and secure the borders. There was a particular border dispute going on with the Ammonites to the east, about 40 miles to the east. And uh, this was the time that they were to be dealt with. But where was David? Though he was king, he was at home. He had sent out Joab, his very capable general, to do what really he should have been doing with him. And what is David doing? Well, it looks as if he's not doing an awful lot. You see in the next verse, verse 2, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. The ESV has late afternoon. So David's been having a nap. He's been having a lie down. He's just lounging around. His place is with the army, 40 miles to the east at the siege of Rabbah, but he's just sitting about. And this is the context for for David's sin. On the one hand, he's not taking his duty, his God-given duty, seriously. He's been given a role under God. He's not following that. And on the other hand, we see here the effects of David being in a position where he can do what he wants. He's about 50 years old at this point. His life before this has been really complicated. He's, he's been a shepherd. He's been on the run from Saul. He, he has been made king. He spent some time establishing a kingdom. Now things are secure. He thinks he can relax. And he does. And he has power. It's one of the themes of this chapter. You keep an eye out for the word, how often the word sent appears. It's maybe more clear in the ESV than it is in the NIV. He sent Joab. He sends for Bathsheba. He sends for Uriah and so on. David has power. And with power, you see, comes the ability to do what you want. And when David gets to do what he wants, he is being self-indulgent. He's not in the battlefield. He's still in his jammies at tea time. He's the boss of David. And this is the context for his sin. You know, your granny would have said, the devil finds work for idle hands, remember? Now, we live at a time and in a place that prizes what David has achieved here. You know know what the world says to us? Get to the top, and you get to live the life you've dreamed of. And the world also says to us, be self-indulgent. You owe it to yourself. You're worth it. You deserve it. How many illustrations are there of those who have achieved great prominence within this world and then have made terrible, self-centered, self-indulgent choices and their lives have just spiraled into disaster? Alongside that, a whole generation of children and young people are growing up and they have been told that they should be what they want. They can have what they want. And what a tragedy that is whenever we see that working out in the life of David. It was the context of his sin. So what does David do? Well, with nothing to do, with nothing good on the TV and all the box sets finished, he goes out to catch the evening air. And from the high vantage point of the palace, he sees Bathsheba. She's having a bath and she is beautiful. Now, that's not the problem. That's not the sin. The fact that he sees her is not the sin. It is the fact that he continues to see her. We know what he should have done. He should have turned away, but, but he doesn't. Rather, as we were saying to the children, a stone begins to roll down the hill, and a whole series of events 
follow. Martin Luther famously said about temptation, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them building nests in your hair. You see, if verse 3 had said, well, David turned away and said, oh Lord, grant me clean hands and a pure heart. Well, this would have been a very different story. But verse 3 says, and David sent and inquired about the woman. Now, you sort of want to say to David, don't you? David, what on earth are you doing? And what would he have said, do you imagine, if, if you'd had the opportunity to do that, if you were his close friend and he told you what he'd just done? I, I suspect he'd have said, oh, you know, no harm in it. I, I'm just interested to find out who she is. Nothing's going to come of it. Come on. Just curious. But David should know, does know, that the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Don't we know what it is to tell ourselves about some particular sin? Oh, nothing's going to come of it. I'm just curious when actually we know that we're kidding ourselves. Well, the the answer comes back in verse 3. One said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And and that should have caused David to stop in his tracks again. Bathsheba was the daughter of Eliam, one of the mighty men. David had a sort of a, a core troop of commandos called the mighty men, and they'd fought valiantly at his side. And this was one of their daughters. It was also uh, the wife of Uriah. Uh, she was also the wife of Uriah, who was another of the mighty men. Uriah was in the battlefield where David should have been. Now, what he was going to do was wrong, no matter who it was. But this is an even deeper betrayal. But the rocks are tumbling down the hill now, and so he sends for her. Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, we don't know if if Bathsheba is complicit or helpless. It would have been hard to say no to the king. But, and, and don't get me wrong here, she's not really the focus of this account. This is about the awfulness of what David does. And you notice that there's no romance in this account. There's no flowers. There's no long walks. You see how it's told, depending on your translation. He sent, he took, she came, he lay. There's a brutality about it. And there's an echo of the first sin here also. Genesis 3 and 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, she saw it and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. And you see, what had happened there was that Adam and Eve had chosen to set aside faith in what God had said. You must not eat from this particular tree tree in the garden. And they had chosen to live by sight. They they, they had said, we know what God says, but what we see is even better than what God says. And here David does the same. He is led by what he sees rather than by faith in the living word of God. Well, she returns home. Does David have any plans to see her again? We do not know. Do they swap numbers? We do not know. 
Maybe she fades to the back of his mind. Perhaps he thinks it's over and done with. It's in the past. He's in control after all. He's the one who sends. But actually, he's not in control at all. Because now you see that Bathsheba sends. She sends word to David, I am pregnant. The only words that we hear her say. We're not told how long it took David to come up with his plan, but he does have a plan, and he begins to send again. He wants to be in control again, and so he starts sending. And in verse 6, he sends words to Joab to have Uriah come back from the battlefield. It's just a couple of days away. And the hypocrisy of David is stunning here as he questions Uriah in verse 7 about how the, the, the guys are doing and how the battle is going. You notice we're not told what Uriah says in response to those questions, as if to say, reader, you do understand it. David was not interested in hearing that answer at all. What he's interested in is what comes next. David said to Uriah, verse 8, go down to your house and wash your feet. This is why Uriah has been brought back, so that he can spend the night with his wife, and the resulting child, the, the impending child, will look as if it is his. And Uriah leaves the palace, but David can't control the actions of Uriah, and Uriah doesn't go home. His house is only a few yards away. It's within viewing distance, but, but he sleeps at the palace entrance with the servants. And David hears of this. He quizzes Uriah. Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answers, verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My master Job and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Now, Uriah is a Hittite. That's emphasized a few times. He's come into the people of God from outside, as it were. But we see here, he's fully committed to God's project, to God's people, to his brothers in arms. He knows how hard it is for them in the battle. He's not going to take it easy while they're having it tough. And whether he knows it or not, maybe he has a little suspicion. Maybe there's been chat around the palace servants. But whether he knows it or not, what he says is a rebuke to David. In saying, my place is with the men and the Ark of the Covenant, in being about this divine task that we've been given in protecting the borders of the people of God, he's also saying, David, your place is with the men and in fulfilling your God-given duty. The contrast between these two men is stark, isn't it? At this point, Uriah has power and opportunity, and encouragement to be, if you like, legitimately self-indulgent. But unlike David, he exercises self-control. David's plan A has run into the weeds. But David's got a plan B. He invites Uriah for a meal. He gets him drunk, obviously hoping that some alcohol will erode Uriah's principles, as we know it so easily does. But it turns out that Uriah, drunk, is more honorable than David, sober. And Uriah sleeps again at the entrance to the palace. Well, there's always plan C. And plan C is terrible. 
David writes this letter for Joab in it. He tells him to put Uriah in the forefront of the battle to withdraw so that he will be killed. He has written that Uriah's death sentence. He, he gives it to Uriah to take to Joab. That's a, a stunning move. Presumably the letter is sealed, but perhaps the implication is too that Uriah is of such good character that he would not read the king's correspondence. Now, we didn't actually look at the story as we were working our way through 2 Samuel, but back in chapter 3, we find that Joab, this general, had at one point murdered a man called Abner, one of Saul's sons, because Abner had killed Joab's brother, Asheel. And at that point, David was furious with him. But now David aligns with him. He uses him to have Uriah killed. And Job does what he's commanded to do. He sends a messenger back to report the results. It's a bad military decision that's cost Israelite lives. But the key issue is that Uriah is dead. And David hypocritically says, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack to the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. So he wipes out one man's life, others with him. And he says, these things happen. Bathsheba seems to have known nothing really about David's scheme. She genuinely mourns for her husband, but when the period of mourning is over, David sends again in verse 27, has her brought to his house, and she becomes his wife and gives birth to a son. What do you think David is thinking? All's well that ends well. Well, let's make a few very basic observations. This is a, a passage that, as we've almost hinted, nearly speaks itself, doesn't it? It doesn't need much comment on it. But, but let's say this very clearly, doesn't sin spreads? That's, that's such a, a basic observation. It's really what we were saying to the children. This dreadful progression of how one thing leads to another, to another, to another. We see this in daily life all the time. And you see, it's clear that, that, that though he's not mentioned, the devil is here, and he's saying to David that the next step in this journey of terrible sin is always going to be easier and more sensible than coming clean and repenting. The devil will say that to us. You've got to know that. And as we watch David, it's obvious that, that he should stop at every point. But sin will often be presented to us as logical and even as necessary in our twisted thinking so that we tell ourselves, I had no choice. How necessary it is for us to believe that sin is always disastrous and that God and his ways are always good. Just got to Trust the Lord in that. Sin spreads. Let's say a word about our capacity for sin. Because as we see the, the awfulness of what David does here, I hope we realize that every one of us has the capacity to do what he did and worse. The capacity for every sin lies in every human heart and in every Christian's heart. 
The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, let he who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We're going to sing a hymn at the end of the service, and it has in the last verse these lines, Oh, give me, Lord, the tender heart that trembles at the approach of sin. A godly fear of sin impart, implant and root it deep within. So, so one of the things that we need to, to take away from this is that we should be those who, who tremble at sin because we know our capacity is, is just as great as that of David to mess up. And at the same time, we believe, too, what 1 Corinthians goes on to say, 10 and 13, that God will not let you be tempted beyond our, your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That was true at every point of David's journey. Nothing inevitable about David's story. So, so you see, we, we, we tremble because of our capacity to sin. We resist because of God's capacity to help us. Then let's see something about, about God seeing. We, we didn't actually comment on the whole chapter. You might have noticed that. The very last sentence says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Literally, it says, it was evil in God's eyes. Now, if you look at that chapter, you'll notice that there's no reference to God right through the whole chapter until that very last line. As if to say, David, as the man after God's own heart, David was living and acting for nine months without reference to God. He was hiding from God in his heart. He was... He was he was not glancing up, as it were. But, but when the whole tale is complete, what do we find? David was not looking at the Lord, but the Lord was looking at David. God's eyes were on him. God's eyes were on him when he was lounging around the palace. God's eyes were on him when his eyes were on Bathsheba. God's eyes were on him when he sent and took and lay with her. God's eyes were on him when he went about his business as usual afterwards. God's eyes were on him when he sent for Uriah, when he checked the stock in his drinks cabinet, when he wrote the death sentence. God sees. And one of the things that will help us in temptation is to know that, is, is to remind ourselves that every moment of every day we live before his face. And as we know that, the challenge is not to turn from him, but to look to him. In one place, in, in Psalm 25, David writes, my eyes are ever on the Lord." I don't know if he wrote that before or after this story. But that's not where he was during this chapter. But it's where he should have been. His eyes should have been on the Lord because, as we see, the Lord's eyes were on him. And the Lord's eyes are on us. Sin spreads. We have a, 
tremendous capacity for sin. God has a tremendous capacity to help us. God sees all things. And the last thing, just in a word, is is this is not the king that we need. You remember so much of what we've been seeing about David, especially around these chapters, has has been to emphasize his goodness. He is God's man. He's been a, a, a courageous king. He's a kind king. And if you'd been in his service, if you'd been part of his royal court, you might have thought, it can't get any better than this. God's promised king is here and on the throne. And then you'd see this this year, and you think, this king too is flawed. He too is broken and sinful. We need a better king than this. You would say, who can have my unfiltered allegiance? And if you'd asked that question then, you'd have been asking that question for nearly a thousand years until until the arrival of great David's greater son. Because, as we've said so often, Jesus is the true king that we really need. You see, you, you and I, we were, we were made to give unfiltered allegiance, unfiltered devotion, entire worship to another. That, that's, that's who you are. That, that's, that's who God has made you. We find ourselves in our lives bowing before so many other pretenders, including at the altar of ourselves. But only Jesus deserves that worship. Only he can bear the weight of such devotion. Only he is the true king. And not only is he the one who can take our worship, he's the one who can rescue us from our sin. Isn't it true? Just just as we read this story, we cannot help as we see David's sin we cannot help but think of our own. And surely part of what we think is not just, I need a king, but I need a savior. I need one to rescue me from me. And Jesus is that king, and he's that savior. And so today, friends, as as our hearts are laid bare by his word, and they are. Let his word direct us to the fact that that there is a king that we can trust who is a savior. Let's pray for a moment. We're really, really grateful that that this story is in the Bible. It's so important for us. For we know, Lord, that we're tempted so quickly to downplay sin and its consequences, to rationalize it, to forget about it. But you're the God whose eyes were on David and whose eyes are on us. Lord, give us those hearts that tremble at the approach of sin. And give us too, O Lord, 
those hearts that are fully confident in your capacity to help us to deal with it. Just now, in a moment of quietness, we, we bring to you those paths that perhaps we've started out among, along that, that, oh Lord, we need to step off. Those plans that we have that we need to change. Those records that we have that we need to confess. Thank you that you're a king that we can trust. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.